Welcome to Voices of Resilience, a special series from the Vital Voices podcast, where we're sharing stories of courage, commitment, innovation, and perseverance from women leaders in unprecedented crisis. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. In recognition of World Refugee Awareness Month, today I'm speaking with Global Freedom Exchange fellow Heidi Kwa. Heidi is founder and director of Refuge for Refugees, an organization dedicated to supporting refugee community through education. So um, today, obviously, we know that as COVID-19 impacts communities around the world and exacerbates existing issues for populations like refugees, Heidi is working with other organizations to distribute food and resources to migrant communities. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So just to start off, I know that you are based in Malaysia. Um, So good evening to you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how Malaysia has been impacted by COVID-19 and what's the status of, of the pandemic near you? Yeah, so when we first, like, I mean, about 10 weeks ago, we were actually one of the worst hit countries um, in Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia. Our numbers were climbing up really high um, and, you know, the entire country had to go under lockdown, um, pretty strict movement control orders, actually. Um, But now we are towards the end. Um, I mean, of course, we're still waiting for the government announcement that will probably happen this weekend. But we are towards the end and the country is preparing, uh, you know, to open once again. So that is where we are at the moment. Cases still fluctuate every day. Um, It really is because, you know, so much is happening in the country. Um, Cases fluctuate mainly because over the past couple of weeks, we have had mass arrest of the refugee and migrant communities happening here where, um, the authorities have gone into um, communities just to mass arrest about 700 people per community. And so that kind of causes the spread of the virus quite a fair bit, um, especially in detention centers. But in general, I think we are doing much better than we were 10, year, 10 weeks ago. Mm. So obviously, I know you um, work a lot with the refugee community. And obviously we know that it's impossible to social distance, to shelter in place at home. What's been the experience like for refugees there during the pandemic? Yeah, I think it's just been such a hard and confusing time. You know, it all started off with, you know, when 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 this whole thing started about 10, 12 weeks ago, um, it was just having to get down to making sure that as much information from the authorities um, were translated into languages that the community understand. I mean, I can't imagine going through something so massive, but not being able to understand the directives from the current country, the government of the current country that you're in. Um, so it all started from there. Um, and it's really snowballed since, you know, over the past 10 weeks. We have seen, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen is that with the movement control order in place, um, a lot from the refugee and migrant community are not able to go to work and because they are dependent on daily wages, um, this kind of threw everything offset, you know, um, they, they are now struggling to put food on the table, they are now struggling to pay rent. Um, like, like you've mentioned, social distancing 
is for the privilege, you know, hand sanitizing as well. So many things that, you know, that, that this pandemic has required us to do in order to keep safe um, are things that the communities can't do because of the circumstances that they're currently in. Um, so it has been um, an extremely trying and difficult time in Malaysia, especially over the past three weeks, we have seen an increase in hate speech and xenophobic comments towards the refugee community. Mm -hmm. And this has actually led to mass arrests happening across where I think at the moment we've had close to 2000 uh, refugees and migrants that have been detained in detention centers. Mm. So you mentioned food insecurity um, and I just wondered, I know you are doing some work in particular about really getting food to those who um, are in need. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so we have currently with three other partner organizations, we work towards um, pushing out food aid for about a thousand families on a weekly basis. Um, and this includes everything from collecting names and needs on the ground to making sure that we planned out, um, we planned out food aid in accordance to the pellets of the community. And this is actually something that I really learned at um, GFE in one of my shelter visits or one of the uh, visits to a refugee shelter. Um, you know, we're just talking about how do we best support the community in such a time as this, um, making sure that we don't just provide aid, but we provide aid that is helpful for the community. Um, mm. So that's what we've been doing, um, pushing out grocery packs to about a thousand families on a weekly basis now. At the moment, now we are about 10 weeks in and we have currently provided for about 41,000 beneficiaries um, across 930 locations in Malaysia. Wow. And tell us sort of logistically how, how that all of that is working because, you know, obviously there's there's complications with contact. So. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yes, so we have a base in which we do the massive packing. Every Saturday, a 20-ton trailer will come with all our supplies. Um, and then we gather a bunch of volunteers, we unpack the 20-ton trailer, and we pack everything into a thousand grocery bags. Um, and then throughout the week, about two to three times in the week, we have dispatch days where volunteers come to the hall um, and get their list um, and then they go on the delivery routes, you know. So we do both mass drop-offs um, for communities that stay together in a, in a low-cost flat, for example. But we also we also do individual drop-offs. Um, and, and, you know, in, so we do have SOPs in place um, where for mass drop-offs, we brief our point of contact and tell the person that only call two people down at a time to collect food aid. So we make sure that it reaches them at 10 a.m. in the morning so that by the evening, all 70 people within his master list would have received food aid. Um, mm. And for individual drop-offs, we go right to their doorsteps, basically. Um, it's been a really interesting time working with the community uh, with so many sensitivities as well. But we, we are really thankful for incredible partners um, that has really supported us in navigating through the situation, making sure that we... Um, are sensitive to the community and your struggles at such a time as this. Mm. I know that you are really on the front lines of this pandemic and beyond food delivery, you are also helping survivors of violence and exploitation to find shelter. 
um, so that they can keep themselves safe. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing there and sort of the unique circumstances that this pandemic brings to keeping survivors safe? Yeah, so, um, you know, with everyone having to stay home, we have seen a massive increase um, in, in rates of domestic violence in the country. And, and what, you know, I have been doing alongside a team, uh, we have actually been working with Airbnbs and hotels uh, to find emergency shelters for um, victims of violence. This is because a lot of our current shelters are either at max capacity or if they're not at max capacity, um, there's so many there's so much um, that, that's really hindering us from bringing people into shelters. This, this, this includes, you know, making sure that everyone goes through the COVID testing uh, kit before they get entered into a shelter. Um, and because of all these difficulties and struggles in place, we have really made sure that we found creative ways to work around it by uh, tapping into Airbnbs and hotels uh, to temporary shelter um, victims of violence until a shelter and a permanent space opens up for them. Now, obviously, violence, exploitation, human trafficking, all of this continues through the pandemic. And, you know, I would imagine it's shifted a bit. And I would love to hear your insights about what's going on. Yeah, I I think that it's been it's been frustrating in so many sense because um, survivors are not given a platform to speak out, um, and they're being monitored even more by their abusers at home, um, and 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 all these things you know uh, includes us as caseworkers not being able to go down on the ground to meet survivors um, because of the current situation. So I think this has kind of put a lot more stress onto the community and into giving them access to, to receiving adequate support. Hi, do you mind if I ask, I mean, how, how did you get into this work? I got into the work about, I think it was really by chance, um, also because I have been involved, I've been working with the refugee community for the past 10 years now. So um, I think just over the past 10 years, we've really just established ourselves, or I've established myself as someone that's accessible um, to communities, regardless your documentation. Um, and it all started from a pretty major baby selling case that I took on in 2018, where a refugee mother who gave birth in a clinic had a baby sold um, for about 150,000 ringgit in a black market. That's where I started dabbling a bit more into human trafficking work. And, and yeah, one thing that to another, I think our point of contact started telling people about the work that we do and more and more uh, ladies from the vulnerable community started reaching out to us for support. Mm, mm, absolutely, wow. I can imagine the um, the impact, per certainly then, of this crisis on top of that is just yes. you know, exacerbating these these um, already very difficult situations. Yeah. What really helps also is that we have, um, because we've been known in the field for the work that we do. Um, just just recently, with the with the work um, with victims of violence. Um, 
we've actually been engaged by the Ministry of Women to, to advise uh, on a national level, um, to consult on a national level on how do we better protect um, victims of violence. So to be able to be pulled in and to be kind of appointed by the Ministry of Women in Malaysia to do this um, has been a pretty surreal experience. Hmm. Um, how large is the refugee population within Malaysia? We are at about 180,000 registered refugees, um, but, but the numbers are obviously much, much bigger. These are just the numbers that we can track through the UNICEF registration system, but we know that the, at least 70% of them have not been registered yet and have not been able to get an appointment card to be registered. And where, where are they mostly coming from? They are mostly coming from um, Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Just actually over the, um, the past 10 weeks, we have had quite a number of boats arrive, um, quite a number of boats of Rohingya refugees arrive on our shores. Mm. Um, so that, that has been happening. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of the people coming in, um, a lot of the refugees coming in are from surrounding neighboring countries like Bangladesh, Myanmar. India, Pakistan. Hmm. Wow. Well, can I ask you, how do you keep yourself, you know, centered and moving forward? And, and what's really giving you, you know, hope right now? Yeah, I, um, for me, I think um, keeping your mental health in check is so key. And what really keeps you going actually is um, having access to, therapy, um, you know, and being able to process the trauma that we see on a daily basis um, with a trained professional. So I know that, you know, many don't have the privilege that I do, um, but that's something that really has been keeping me going. But what keeps me going as well is actually working with like-minded people, um, working, I think choosing to see it's, you know, when we experience, when we in our day to day, we ex experience so much trauma in that sense, um, and we can either get really jaded by it or use it as a motivation to keep us going to tackle bigger issues. Um, I think a key one key thing that you know I also encourage people to do is surround yourself with like minded people. Um, that is that is something that that partner partner with like minded people in the field um, because this journey um, it's not supposed to be you're not supposed to do this alone. Thank you so much for your extraordinary work, Heidi. I, uh, I'm in awe of, of all you do normally, but I think particularly under these more difficult circumstances. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Louise. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. We hope that you're doing all you can to keep yourselves, your families, your teams, and your communities safe and healthy. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders in this country and around the world, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org. Or you can text VITAL, V-I-T-A-L, to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. Stay safe and remember that we will get through this unsettling time together.